I was actually meeting with uh, Abby, who read the passage this morning, and I told her uh, that Ben was actually my RUF intern when I was at the University of Georgia, and her response was, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Which I've realized is what younger people say to older people when they find out they have friends. <laughs> like when you see an old couple that's playing chess, you're like, ah, that's cute. Look at them go. So uh, truth, truth be told, Ben was my RUF intern when I was at the University of Georgia. I graduated in 2010, just to remind you that I am younger than him. Um, but he has been a great, a great, great friend to me. When I found out he was coming back to Athens, I was uh, totally blown away. God's grace and his goodness and, and bring us back into the same town um, cannot be overstated. So uh, I'm excited uh, to be here with you all uh, this evening. We are talking about the same thing y'all have been talking about for the last few weeks, I understand it, which is the kingdom of God. Uh, one of the things that uh, Ben has been restating over and over again is that we need to look at what it looks like when people in communities fall under the gracious influence of King Jesus. And so in doing that, we're going we're gonna to spend some time focusing in on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that's found uh, in total in the chapters 5 to 7 uh, in Matthew's Gospel. If you think about it this way, if you've ever gone through um, you know, a presidential election or a local election, I myself try to ignore most of those, but you can't. Um, so if you go through an election, you'll, you'll find that the next person to kind of take the presidency or, or go into the governor's office or the mayor's office or whatever it is, they, they give a lot of promises about this is what it's going to look like when I'm in power. This is what it's going to look like when I'm in charge. This is what it's going to look like if you put me on top. Well, in a lot of ways, that's what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is. It's him going, this is what my kingdom and my reign is going to be about. And not only that, this is what the people of my kingdom are going to be like, which is why it's so astounding that he begins with, oh, they're going to be meek. They're going to be poor in spirit. They're going to be hurting. Those are the kind of people that my kingdom are going to be for. But we're looking at this announcement that Jesus gives us of, this is what my kingdom is going to be about. And you don't elect me. I'm already on the throne. As he comes into the world, his kingdom is ushered in. And he says, this is what my people and my kingdom are going to look like. Specifically tonight, we are going to look at um, kingdom conflict. What does it look like, and is there a place for anger in the kingdom of God? I think Ben only gave me this passage because my last name is, in fact, Angert. But that's okay. I promise I'm not an inherently angry person. That joke was terrible, and I beg your forgiveness. <laughs> Um, I didn't write that one. That wasn't like one I wrote down and then I'm going to cross off like I failed. Um, <laughs> we are going to talk about anger and its place if there is one in the kingdom of God. Abby read the passage from Matthew chapter 5 uh, starting in verse 21 and I would love to pray for us as we dig in. Uh, gracious God, we thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Lord, what a gift to have a space where we stand before you, where we are free to lift our voices to you. Uh, where we are free to study your word and proclaim it out loud. Lord, I pray uh, for those of your people who walk through these doors, who have known you a long time, Lord, that you would help them to reconsider what it looks like uh, and, and where anger is placed in our hearts when it comes to being the people of God. For those who do not know you, Father, I pray that you would give them just, a, if nothing else, a firm and clear glimpse of your love for us in Jesus Christ. For we see it in every word, in every verse, and on every page of scripture. Father, so as we turn to your word, I pray that we would see that. Use me uh, as your instrument in that process. 
by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so a few years ago, I had an ultrasound. I'm not pregnant. It's a weird experience when you're a guy and you go to get an ultrasound. I have three kids, so I've been through three of those with my wife. When, when you're going to see if there's a child inside of you, there's generally like an emotional support, support, support person next to you. There's like someone to hold your hand and, and hopefully celebrate if everything goes well. Uh, when you're just a guy and there could be something wrong with you, it's just like you cold in a room pulling up your shirt and somebody jabbing you. And so I go to take this ultrasound, and I went because there were some, some test results, and uh, they just needed to check and make sure that everything was okay. I promise I'm fine. Other than that, I am still a raging hypochondriac, um, and that is still a fact today. WebMD is not my friend. But I went because of the test results, and so I go, and, and an ultrasound is essentially this machine that they, they kind of can rub across you, and they can take a closer look at what's going on inside your body, right? They can start at the surface. You may look fine. You may act fine. Your energy levels might be fine. But if there's one kind of reading on a test that says not everything is as it may appear, then you can take this machine and you can take a closer look inside. You can look deeper inside. Well, for me, it turns out that everything was okay. But as I spent time in that space, and as I spent time thinking about how incredible it is that you can have a machine like that that looks below the surface, I was thinking, what, what if we had something like that that could look at, at really a, a deeper look into our hearts? Now, for the nerds in the room, you're like, it's called an echocardiogram, and I already know this. <laughs> Shut up and follow me, okay? <laughs> what if we had a machine that could take a deeper look at our, our emotional state inside? Because we, we live in a world where, where we're constantly showing people ourselves to a certain degree. We're constantly putting ourselves out there in the world through pictures, through videos, through, through TikTok and Snapchat and different things that are now showing my age the way that I'm saying them. But we're constantly putting ourselves out there. We're trying to show other people in many ways that we're okay, that we're having a great time, that our lives are going well, that our experiences are worthwhile. But what if there was a machine in this world that could be pressed against your heart and could show exactly what's going on inside? Would it look anything like the pictures that you post? Would it look anything like the things that you tell your parents and your friends about how you're doing? I imagine for most of you, if you're anything like me, what it reveals is profound anxiety, fear, uncertainty, doubt, and potentially anger. All those things that boil just below the surface that we don't want anyone else to see, what would it look like if we had a machine that could show and reveal what's really going on inside? Well, I, I, it's, it's interesting because the way that Jesus uses the law in the Sermon on the Mount, the law being, being at, on one hand kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, but also more than that, as you look throughout the Old Testament, the law being God's intentions and regulations for his people, Jesus will take that and he'll use it like an ultrasound. He'll hold it up to you and he'll go, here's what it says about what's going on in the surface. Now let's use that to look a little bit deeper. And so in this part that we're looking at in chapter 5, he's going to quote the law at several different points. and He's going to go, let's start here. Let's start it. Everything looks okay on the outside because you're doing all right in these areas, and then let's use it to look a little bit deeper. 
look a little bit more inside. And so that's exactly what we'll see him do with the law about murdering, right? He'll take it, he'll lift it up, he'll hold it up to his followers, to the disciples, to everybody who's listening to him, and they'll go, let's start here. And then let me use this to show you that what's going on beneath the surface doesn't look as good as you think it is, that you aren't quite as put together as you think you are. So that's what we're looking at as we look at this passage. How is Jesus going to use this law to reveal something deeper about who we are, but also point us towards the solution? So three things, because I'm a Presbyterian. We're going to look at our anger problem. We're going to look at angry people, and they're all alliterated. This is like God's gift to you right now. Anger problem, angry people, and anger's price. So anger problem, angry people, and anger's price. First, let's take a look at our anger problem. Jesus says, you have heard that it, would says, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so he's taking one of the Ten Commandments and some, some comments on the Ten Commandments, and he's going, that commandment is that you shall not murder. And not only that, but if you murder, you will be liable to judgment because you have broken one of God's commandments. And you can almost hear the thoughts and the wheels turning and the people who are listening to him, they're going, okay, did I kill anyone? No. All right, I'm good. Like, we're, we're good. My hands are clean. I've committed no murder. I'm good to go. And Jesus says, but... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Again, put yourself in their shoes. Again, feel what he's saying and how it might have been received. At first, you're going, okay, great, I've got this. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm good with God. Everything's fine. And then Jesus goes, let's talk about what murder really is. Because it's more than just not taking someone's life with your hands. It's removing the image of God and removing their inherent and huma their humanity with your heart and with your words. He's going, it's not just enough not to actually physically kill someone, but murder is what happens when anger takes over in your heart, that whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, so it's kind of what's going on inside and then what's going on outside. Whoever insults with his words, his brother or sister, will be liable to the council. And whoever actually says out loud, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus goes, we need to talk about what anger really is and what murder really is. That it's more than just what we do with our hands when we take another's life. But it's how we remove people's humanity. We remove their dignity. We remove the image of God in them with our words and with our hearts. They may not physically die, but we crush them with our anger and with our feelings. And so we have to ask ourselves, what, what does anger really look like in our lives today? What is our anger problem? I, th I think it's twofold in some ways. One, I think many of us don't really think that we have an anger problem. I think anger is one of those sins that, that tends to kind of fly below the surface. We, we tend as Christians, especially in more conservative contexts, to be hyper-focused on things like sexuality and substances and lust and physical sins that we can see. 
And I think in, in more kind of progressive Christian circles, you tend to focus on sins of, of injustice and oppression, and yet all the while, anger kind of just slowly flies under the radar, and it's just kind of okay because everybody thinks everybody else is angry, but not you. You're not angry. There's this great book by a guy named David Paulison. If you ever read this book, it's called Good and Angry. Chapter 3 is entitled, Do You Have an Anger Problem? There's one word in that chapter. Could you guess what it is? It's yes. So he's got a whole book written on anger, and one of those chapters, Do You Have an Anger Problem? The answer is yes. Listen, I empathize. I'm somebody who has said the words out loud, I'm not an angry person. Right? And then I, I got married, and I had children. I did not intend to say that out loud. <laughs> but you discover things about yourself when you interact with other people. You discover things about your heart when you really commit yourself to love and to uh, sacrifice yourself for another person. You begin to realize that deep down, you're boiling. Deep down, you're angry. And so, Part of the problem with anger is we don't think that we have an anger problem. We think everybody else does, but we don't think that we actually have one. The other part, the other problem that we have with anger is that we get angry about the wrong things. Right, so on the one hand, we might not think we have an anger problem. Maybe you've admitted you do, but you're just angry about the wrong things. Dan Allender is, is a counselor and a writer. He has a book called Cry of the Soul, and he has a couple chapters on anger, but in one of them he says that our anger, when you, when you kind of strip all the other stuff away, and you strip away the kind of false claims of, of righteous anger, and you strip away all the false claims of, of I'm allowed to do this, or it's I'm not really that angry, he says deep down what you see is that our anger is designed to possess whatever slice of heaven we can find now and preserve that small sliver of satisfaction. He says that at the end of the day, what we're angry about, right, oftentimes it's, it's not things that we should be angry about. It's not righteous anger, which we'll talk about in a second, right? What we're angry about is not injustice or anything else in the world. What we're angry about is that that little slice of heaven that we thought we had, that little peace that we thought we had, we don't really possess it like we thought we would. It, we're trying to preserve it as best we can. We're trying to hold on to it. Where do we see this in our own lives? Our little slice of heaven can be political. It can be relational. Our slices of heaven can be religious, right? Your denomination, your church, your background, whatever that may look like. Our slice of heaven can be the left lane on a highway. Guilty as charged. I grew up in Atlanta. I just want to get by you. Please stop driving so slow. Your little slice of heaven can be a left lane on a highway. It can be a parking spot at church. It could be your political candidate. It could be the job that you hope for, the girl that you hope to date, the guy that you hope to date. What is your little slice of heaven? And what does it feel like when you start to feel that slip away? So much of the time, our anger is a result of our desire for control, our desire for possession of things that we will never fully possess until the end. But we're trying to have them now because they make us feel good because it gives us a sense of purpose and of peace. We're trying to grab things that are never really going to fulfill us in this life, and we're trying to possess them, and our anger is often a result of that. So on the one hand, Jesus is going, you, you do have an anger problem, because I, every single person in this room 
has been angry at another person. Every single person in this room has insulted another person in their, in their mind or out loud or on the keyboard. Every single person in this room has called someone else a fool in their mind or online or out loud. It's all of us. There's something about humanity that when it comes to community, it just breeds anger and resentment so much of the time. And Jesus is going, you do have an anger problem. And so often we're angry about the wrong things. We're looking at other people and we're wondering why they're not following our paradigms, why they're not living in our little slice of heaven, why they're not following our rules and obeying what we think to do. So is anger ever okay? I guess that would be the next logical question. Is anger ever all right? I would argue that a good person to look to to try to understand if anger is okay would be Jesus. You look at the person of Jesus Christ, the kind of classic example that you get is Jesus turning over the tables. You're like, is it okay to be angry? Yes, Jesus turned over tables. Let's qualify that like a little bit. Jesus was angry. He went to the temple. He saw in the place where people should be worshiping the Father, people were selling sacrifices, selling things that other people could sacrifice to satisfy God. They were turning the temple into a marketplace to try to make a profit. Jesus is angry. One of the things that angers Jesus more than anything else is false religion. Right? It's not the people, per se. It's not the people committing the actions. It's often that Jesus knows who God really is. And he's angry because other people, through their actions, through the way that they're treating others, through the way that they're treating the temple and worship of God themselves, are keeping others from the true God. And so Jesus is angered by false religion, but he's also angered oftentimes by the fallenness of the world. I have to credit Dr. Tim Keller with this. If you've ever listened um, to his sermon, he gave the sermon on the Sunday after 9-11. He was already a pastor in New York at that point, and he was preaching on John chapter 11, which if you know anything about that, is the story of Jesus and Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters. And when, when... Lazarus's sisters reach out to Jesus and they say, hey, our brother's about to die. Then he says, okay, I'm coming, but then he doesn't come in time, and so Lazarus dies. And the sisters kind of cry out to them and go, how could you? If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And as Jesus is looking around and he's seeing everybody mourn and everybody's sad, it tells us that the text tells us that Jesus was deeply moved. If you flip in your Bibles, most of your English translations in John chapter 11 are going to say that Jesus was deeply moved. Well, the Greek there, it's stronger than that. He's not just sad. He's not just upset, he's angry. He's indignant, right? Because what angers Jesus is not just that he knows who God really is, but he also knows how the world is really supposed to be. He's angered about death, he's angered about sin, he's angered about the brokenness of the world because he knows that that's not our final destination and that's not the way that things are supposed to be. That's what makes him angry. It's not people not fitting his paradigm, it's not people not obeying the rules. It's the brokenness of the world manifested in things like death and disease, and it's the brokenness of the world manifesting itself in things like false religion. People not really knowing who God really is. People impeding others from knowing who God really is. And so part of the problem, again, is, is some of us think we don't have the anger problem. Some of us think or are simply angry about the wrong things. And all the while, Jesus is showing us that, that it's, it's not the emotion that's the problem. The problem is, is of anger is not the emotion that we feel, it's the misdirection of that emotion. That when we feel it, it's not geared towards things like brokenness and injustice and pain 
and how those things are alien invaders in this world. It's directed towards people because they're not following our programs. It's directed towards people and situations because they're trying to take away our little slice of heaven and they're upsetting our sense of control. And so we have to ask ourselves, how then does Jesus begin to redirect our emotion of anger? I want you to, if you've got the text in front of you, I want you to take a look at it because he does something really interesting here. And so he says, anyone who says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Kind of, you know, can't get around that one. And so he begins to apply this principle. So he says it, it, it's, it's not just enough that you haven't murdered, but if you're angry, if you call someone a fool, if you insult them, there will be judgment for you. And so how do we apply this? He says in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, think about that. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Think about this. He's talking about the place of anger in our hearts. He's talking about how anger festers and how it leads us to insult and to shout out at other people and to call them fools and to take away their dignity. And he goes, you know how we deal with anger? Rather than addressing it on the inside level right off the bat, rather than addressing it on what's going on inside, he goes, no, let's talk about how you address anger in somebody else. He goes, you want to put anger to death, turn around and deal with the person who's angry at you. Think about what a weird turn that is. He doesn't say, hey, here's 10 steps to make sure that anger doesn't exist in your heart. He goes, here's how you become part of the solution for addressing the anger in somebody else's heart. You turn around and if you're angry at the other person, or if someone, sorry, if someone else is angry at you, then you turn around and you go and address that and you be reconciled to that person. The world, when it comes to dealing with angry people, when it comes to dealing with negative people in our lives, the world will tell us that we deal with it by looking inward, by finding peace, and by separating us from negative and difficult circumstances. It's the kind of self help, self-love gospel that says, listen, the only way to be happy is to expel anything challenging from your life, including other people. Only surround yourself with people that make you happy and agree with you. And Jesus says, no, anger doesn't die because we've removed everybody else. Anger doesn't die because we've dismissed everybody else. Anger is put to death when we die to self, when we begin to move towards those who are difficult we begin to move towards those who have issues with us, when we are willing to turn around within the context of community and turn towards those who are angry. Right before he really begins to address the heart level of anger in our own hearts, he says, let's talk about the place of anger in the community. It's put to death. Not when we move further and further and further apart, but when the people of God begin to turn around and go, I'll come towards you. I'll move towards you. Think about it this way. There have been a number of like massive wildfires out west in the past few months. When, when my family and I were living in Colorado, it seemed like every other summer, everything was on fire and you had to close the windows and there wasn't air conditioning because they're just not that advanced yet out there. And so you'd have to close the windows and it was just hot as all get out inside. But there's wildfires out west. What happens? What if everybody runs away? What if every last person within the context of that fire runs away and there's nobody there to address it? 
It just burns and burns and burns and burns. There have to be a few people well-equipped with the gear, with the water, with the means to turn around and move towards that fire in order for it to stop before it's burned out because it's destroyed everything in its wake. The same is true of, of a bomb, right? If everybody runs away, the bomb goes off and destroys everything around it. There have to be a few people who know how to defuse it, moving towards the threat, knowing how to disarm it, knowing how to take it apart. And Jesus is going, the people of God, equipped with the gospel, which we'll talk about in a second, are those who are moving towards the flames, moving towards the threat, equipped with the love of Christ to move towards those things that seem like conflict, seem like anger, seem dangerous. We're able to move towards those difficult relationships. That's what I'm talking about. There's too many people in the world who, in the face of challenges relationally and otherwise, are just too willing to dismiss it and say, it's not my problem. I'm just going to do whatever makes me happy. Now, let me caveat this a little bit, because some of you have relationships in your lives that it is simply not safe to move towards all the time. And, and Jesus is not in the business here of kind of talking about every single relationship, but I, I need to say that in light of the, the whole counsel of God and the reality of the world in which we live, there are, there are unhealthy relationships. We can talk later, or you can find me later, to talk about what it means to move towards people even in those kinds of relationships. But it's not always a physical moving towards, because there are unsafe situations where you should not move towards. But in, at the end of the day, the general posture of the Christian, the gut reaction of the Christian should not be to dismiss and should not be to destroy, but should be to die to self and move towards. How is that possible? How do we become the people running towards the fire in a world where everybody seems angry? How do we become the people moving towards the threat in a world where everybody feels threatened? This is where we're going to move a little bit beyond this passage and talk about anger's price. How is it that this kind of grace are possible, is possible, and what are our resources? This is where we look inside. This is where we have to begin to ask ourselves, what does it look like to not only understand that we are angry, but how God chooses to deal with our angry, ang with our angry, our anger. I had one day to prepare for this. Let's all be clear. I want to think about how Scripture talks about God's people, specifically Paul. Paul, who was angry at God. Paul, who if you know anything about his early life before he became a Christian, spent his whole life trying to kill and imprison other Christians because of what they were preaching. Paul, when he talks about God's people, he talks about them in very specific ways. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to um, Romans chapter 5. We'll take a quick look there. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says, for if while we were enemies, think about that word, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When Paul uses the word enemies, he's talking about those who are hostile, those who are angry, those who are against God himself. And he says, listen, this is how God deals with anger. And this is how God deals with sin. He dies. He lays down his life to pay the price for that anger. So while you're angry at him, and while your enmity exists between you and God, do you know how God deals with it? He doesn't dismiss you. He doesn't destroy you. He dies to himself, literally, physically on the cross, lays down his life for you. 
He will go on to say in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, if you've got that in front of you, he'll say, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Once again, enemies, hostile in mind. He goes, you know what's your biggest problem at the end of the day? It's not your anger towards other people, although we should talk about that. He goes, your biggest problem is your anger towards God. That apart from Christ, that apart from the work that he's accomplished for you, you're angry at him. You are an enemy, whether you know it or not. You are at enmity with him. The psalmist in Psalm 2 will say that, that all the nations rage, and all the kings of all the nations plot in vain to try to cut their cords from God, to try to cut ties with him and exist apart from him. That's our base operation to keep ourselves at distance from God so that he has no claims over our lives, so that we don't have to follow his way. And the gospel says, you know how Jesus deals with that? It's not by crushing us. It's not by destroying us. It's not by dismissing us. It's not by even trying to just get us in line with him, by forcing our obedience. It's by dying for us. It's by laying down his life for us. And we see the implications of that on community when we look over at Ephesians chapter 2. I promise I, this is the last one I'm going to make you flip towards. I would fail any sword drill. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, this is starting in verse 13, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ kills our anger. Christ kills our hostility by being killed himself by laying down his life for us. So great is his love and his mercy for his people. You know what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 is the enmity between Jew and Gentile. Two different ethnic groups with two different religions. And Paul says, you were, you were on opposite sides of the aisle. You were on opposite sides of the line. You hated each other. And in order to bring you together, and in order to make you one people, Jesus died for you. He laid down his life so that you could be made into one new person, standing on the firm ground of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. The price for our anger is death, but it's not a price that God asks us to pay. It's not our perfection. It's not some sort of inner peace that we just kind of muster up within ourselves. It's the death of Christ that is the price to put our anger to death. And begin to create a new kind of community that God, through his Holy Spirit, begins to work in us. As we close, Thomas Akempis, who was a, a 14th, 15th century writer and scholar, Christian scholar, he said, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, because you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. How much of our anger and frustration in this world is because we cannot get other people to act like we want them to, to believe what we want them to, to vote how we want them to, to drive how we want them to. And Thomas Akempis 
probably in light of many of these passages that we talked about tonight, goes, listen, don't be angry at that because if you're honest with yourself, you can't even get yourself to act how you want to be. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ says, listen, you don't put yourself together. You don't make yourself unangry. You lean into the love and mercy of Jesus Christ who died not when you were at peace, not when you were feeling good, not when everything was clicking, but when you were hostile, when you were enemies, and when you were angry with him. In the kingdom of God, anger can be a proper response to the brokenness and fallenness of the world. But as believers in Jesus Christ who understand our own anger and brokenness, it is never to be our primary attitude. It is never to be our primary attitude. It can be a proper response, but it is never to be our primary attitude. Think about Jesus' last words, some of his last words as he was hanging on the cross. We're told in the Gospels as he's looking out on all of these people who have put him to death, who have nailed his, his arms and his legs to the cross itself, all of the people who had claimed to follow him and then abandoned him. Do you know what his last words were for them? If you can remember, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. What would it look like if God's people reflected a spirit more in line with that? that came not because we were super holy and religious, but because we profoundly understand God's love for angry people. That God meets us in our anger. That God meets us in our hostility. And that he deals with it by laying down his life. What does it look like if you and I, in our relationships with people that we're angry towards and who are angry towards us, begin to ask ourselves, what does it look like to die to ourselves? To move towards. To be reconciled. Because Christ has reconciled us to God through his death on the cross. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy and grace, again, whatever truth, whatever little pieces that we needed to hear tonight, I pray that they would stick. Father, that you would speak deep into our hearts and into our lives, that you would shape us, men and women, who desire to follow you, Lord, that you would shape us in our love and shape us in our affections. Father, you would direct our anger away from just those things that are slipping out of our control, directed towards those things that are broken, that you are working to make right. Father, we love you. We pray uh, that you would be at work here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.